Hi, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the executive director of the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and the Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. I work for farmers who are growing a crop that is a healthy option for people, animals, and the planet. As a part of my job, I get to talk with some super interesting people who are doing some super interesting things on a regular basis. I learned so much from these conversations, and I thought you might enjoy them as well. Welcome to this episode of Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. Um, Dr. Van Wormer, uh, we're going to put you on the spot now in the lightning round. Um, I've got a couple questions. We've talked about these a little bit, but I want to put them together and I want to get your unique perspective on them as a whole. <clears throat> so the health of people, animals, plants, and the environments we share are closely connected. We've already talked about that. How can understanding these links enhance food systems and well-being? And how can partnerships among diverse disciplines, kind of like we have on the call today, and stakeholder groups enrich our ability to develop food systems for healthy people, animals, and environments? Well, thank you for the questions. Um, so I think that it is a really complex topic and I think there are a lot of linkages in there. And sometimes we think about the really direct linkages, you know, we might think about animal production and food safety and disease transmission between people and animals. And that's certainly one connection, but there are also all these, you know, inter indirect con connections that we can think about, whether it's mental health resulting from dealing with the challenges associated with farming and water scarce environments or under other challenging natural resource conditions, or whether it's thinking about how, you know, how the farms fit into the landscape and what that means for animals moving back and forth and maybe sharing pathogens or sharing parasites or influencing water quality. And so I think there are a lot of diverse connections within the system. And so many people have today have pointed to the, you know, the value and the importance of incorporating diverse voices. And I, I think I keep coming back to that, that we have so much to learn from thinking across disciplines, whether we're thinking about, you know, the power of bringing together plant and animal and human diagnostics, but also from thinking across different groups of stakeholders, you know, from everything from government bodies and universities to the communities and the perspectives that people can share across that spectrum. Because I think that's a really, it's a really powerful way to think about what we might be missing and what solutions work in what place. So, so I think that's what I've taken away really is just this repeated emphasis on understanding context and the importance of diverse voices. That's great, thank you. Um, this question will be for Ms. Balaji and Dr. Benson both. Um, and we've got just about five minutes left before I wanna open it up to the public questions. So again, members of the public, if you haven't asked a question yet, please put it in that text box and we will get to it. Um, so Sujala and Andrew, from a, from a regulatory perspective, our labeling laws in the U.S. for foods largely prevent any claims for disease prevention. Policy in the supplement category, however, is more tolerant of health claims. While the robustness of scientific data to substantiate supplement claims is highly variable and poorly understood by consumers, is there an opportunity to incentivize a new sector of food production where development and commercialization of food products and supplements can be driven by opportunity to label with rigorously substantiated health or disease prevention claims. Did you get that or would you like me to read it again? And this, I think this question really speaks to uh, the, the emerging market of nutraceuticals. 
think I understand. Um, talking about food and nutraceuticals both together for a minute, I think I think there is a lot of confusion around labeling that not enough labeling laws. Um, there, there seems to be just way too many terms and uh, claims that are being affixed on labels uh, for food products. Sure, the nutraceutical industry is uh, more regulated in terms of what they can put on the labels and what they cannot. And they have really extensive approval process for that. But when it comes to food products, um, it's not necessarily astringent. But at the same time, I think there is definitely more consumer awareness and education uh, that's needed in understanding the labels than introducing new labeling laws to, to help with um, uh, marketing or advertising or promoting what is healthy for products. Um, I think that's my take. Very good, thank you. Dr. Benson, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, it's you know, this is a question we think about a lot within the center, and and that is you know if we if we create you know different types of food products that that have tremendous amounts of clinical substantiation behind health prevention or disease prevention, um, how can we how can we really capitalize on that as a value add? And and if we're not allowed to label um, as such, then it really really reduces the incentive. Um, or reduces the capacity for that true value add. So I think this is something there's a lot of there's a lot of questions about this right now that, that are circulating. Um, and as I mentioned, there's a lot of confusion and, and you heard Sujala mention that as well. There's a lot of confusion amongst the consumers um, and reading labels as it is, and then even trying to understand the wide range of claims that you'll get in a nutraceutical industry and how well substantiated those are. And so the idea is, can we create something where we, we, we have a level of labeling that consumers understand that there are true health benefits to it? They don't necessarily have to understand all the science behind it, but there's a level of rigor that's different. It's not at the drug level, but it's clearly at a different level than where the supplement industry is. And I think that's one of the big questions right now is how do you go about doing that? Yeah, very good, very good. Um, Vice Chancellor Baim, are you still on the call? I see your video is off. Yep. I'm here, Nate. I was uh, a little shaky there for a little bit, so uh, we're good. My connectivity was shaky. <laughs> oh, good. I thought you were having an, an episode. I'm good. <laughs> Okay, good. Glad to hear that. I want to give you the last question, uh, Vice Chancellor Baim, and partially because I, I really want um, your expertise to, to share with these folks uh, on the call what we're doing at Innovation Campus, or rather what you and your team are doing at Innovation Campus. Um, so before we open up to public comment, I'll, I'll ask this. Um, the University of Nebraska established the Nebraska Innovation Campus to promote public-private partnerships, and this campus includes major infrastructure and research centers uh, the Center for Plant Science Innovation, Food Processing Center, Nebraska Food for Health Center, the, the Water for Food Center with Peter McCormick's team um, for development of crops and foods that can improve human health. What are the best ways to incentivize private sector partnerships that can engage the academy and infrastructure toward developing foods that can reduce the burden of diet-associated disease? 
Yeah, Nate, um, that's a mouthful here. So, you know, first thing I think the university would uh, do better is we need to listen. Um, there's a lot of humility in the conversation today, and uh, I just want to echo that. Um, we need to listen. Uh, we are part of the solution, um, but uh, if we're not careful, we can be part of the problem. And um, by pulling people into Liz's, uh, Liz's comments about bringing in diversities of perspective and, and through different lenses working collaboratively, the Innovation Campus is a vehicle that was created at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to bring voices, whether we're talking about entrepreneurs um, or founders, those who support entrepreneurs or, and founders, um, those who are, are coming from industry, uh, both big and small, um, those who are coming from the academy, uh, those who are coming from uh, NGOs and from uh, state or federal partnerships. It really is a, a melting pot of the best ideas, regardless of where those ideas come from. So that's, that's kind of the, the spirit. The second part of this is that, uh, and I think uh, to Richard's point about you know, technology, uh, producers are busy people and uh, they, don't need, they don't need more work, they need less. So how do we um, de-risk value engineer would be some of the jargon terms we might use. Um, how do we own that risk? Uh, on the university's uh, back um, where we can make it easier for new innovations, ideas, prototypes uh, to actually move from the laboratory to the field or from, from a small scale to a larger scale platform. So the innovation campus is uh, really what that's about. Um, and, and the partnerships that are stewarded there uh, absolutely are, are in alignment with that. When we think about um, the food innovation platform at the University of Nebraska, it's really quite a unique uh, opportunity to think about uh, plant breeding, um, genomics and genetics and animal agriculture, food animal agriculture in particular, and to link um, food with nutrition and health and uh, harmonize it with production practices and innovation. So I think in a nutshell, that's what the Innovation Campus is about. And um, everything we've talked about today, again, going back to how I opened up my session or my comments, it's about uh, thinking how a world that is growing uh, needs uh, food, fuel, feed, and fiber that is produced in a sustainable manner and to include social responsibility um, economic vitality for the producer and uh, environmental stewardship. And uh, that's really what we think about every day. So with that, maybe we could jump into hearing questions from the audience there, Nate. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I'm so glad that we talked about uh, Innovation Campus in this regard, because, you know, for in a lot of ways, this panel um, is represented in the spirit of Innovation Campus in that um, all of these interdisciplinary things that we've talked about today are being worked on together, not just Innovation Campus, but across the state and, and beyond, as a matter of fact. And that's something that we do really well here in Nebraska and um, isn't uh, necessarily as accessible um, in other states. The Vice Chancellor Bame, as you've pointed out to me uh, in the past. 
Um, so it's definitely a, a benefit that we have to working together. Uh, Dr. Rosati, your hand is up. Was there something you'd like to add before we jump into the public questions? No, let's go ahead, Nate, and we can go to the questions. Thank you. Sure. All right. What is the role of co-ops and other supply chain developments in solving, this is this problem, but I'm assuming we're talking, well, maybe Phil, do you wanna flesh out what your question was addressing? I was just wondering in the theme of food systems, you know, how does it go from the field to the market, you know, where, where people buy it and take it home and cook it? And, and what are the missing pieces in the underdeveloped world or even parts of rural Nebraska? It's a supply chain question. Who would like to answer that? Well, I'll, I'll jump in there, Phil. It's a, a, certainly a supply chain issue, but I also think it's a critical partnership as you know, I'll just focus on Nebraska and, and our co-ops. Um, we have this wonderful platform called Nebraska Cooperative Extension, and it really is uh, an opportunity to move discoveries into practice. We do a pretty good job of that here in Nebraska, but uh, there's always room for uh, growth. I think uh, back to that conversation about our responsibility and opportunity to de-risk some of the new ideas and technologies. I think uh, we're in a constant state of transition and evolution and extension, for example. So I'll pick on, uh, on our integrated beef systems platform. Uh, we have 14 beef extension educators, professionals across the state, constantly asking the question, what do the different sectors or segments of the integrated beef system need to, uh, to move forward? And what what is unique and hard to do? And perhaps that's the place for uh, Nebraska Extension. Uh, the cooperative, uh, the co-ops, um, uh, for example, or some of the large multinational uh, uh, seed companies uh, switching over to crop production, their, their uh, reps are out in the field working with producers, answering questions. So uh, we don't need, so long as the producer feels that she is getting the information she needs, we don't need to be sitting right on top. We need to, we need to be augmenting and adding value. And that nimbleness um, is something that a university can uh, provide, but the partnership with co-ops, uh, in this case, uh, Phil, are really, really critical to ensuring maximum value to our producers. Very good. Thank you. All right, let's go on to the next question. Among other barriers affecting smallholder small farmers, how do organizations focused on food security assist in limiting production costs while preventing dependency on subsidies? Wow, that's a good question. I'll read it again. Among other barriers affecting smallholder farmers, how do organizations focused on food security assist in limiting production costs while preventing dependency on, dependency on subsidies. So I think the heart of this question is, um, how do we encourage uh, practices through, through unfunded mandates, um, but prevent dependency on the subsidy to, that then funds the mandate? Does that make sense? 
That's a tough one. That's a Kira or an Ann question, I think. Um, so, so, so Nate, I'm actually, actually sitting there staring at the screen, trying to, to make sure I was under, I got the first half of the question. I was trying to make sure I was fully making sense of the second half. So I'm interpreting it as essentially, how do you support the, the, the production and, and improved and improved production, improved food security with, with, uh, without subsidies? Is that kind of how you're interpreting it? How are that's how I'm doing. How I'm interpreting it. How do how do we encourage um, farmers, small scale farmers, to implement what we've asked them to do, um, and we'll also fund them to do without creating dependency on that on said funding. Sure. Well, you know, I guess I'll kind of share just a few shot, few thoughts on that. And and I think first and foremost is there has to be a willingness to take a long game approach. Um, just like any sort of transition or adoption of new technology, impl implementation of, of new practices. And, and this really applies whether you're talking on a smallholder level, um, you know, in, in a developing country, if you're talking about uh, a, a medium-sized farmer in the United States. I mean, at the end of the day, if you are encouraging or you're asking a farmer to implement a new practice or to change the way that he or she is managing something. There needs to be the long game in mind. Many of these types of things, because, you know, and, and Anne will be able to, you know, she, she mentioned the, the, the 30 seasons, you know, the, the, the reality is, is you know, you, you kind of get, get one chance a year in many cases when you're a farmer. And so, you know, it's not like you can go after a change, try it out a month later, adapt it a month later, adapt it a little more. I mean, you're talking about, you know, kind of one chance to go after it and then hoping it works. And so some of these really take a lot of time. If, you, um, if you're talking in regards to soil health practices, no matter where you're gonna be implementing that in the world, um, you know, the types of practices that, that are, are needing to, to, to be implemented and then the impacts that they have on soil health many times take minimum five years, up to 10 years before you really start seeing the measurable differences. So asking um, a farmer to make a change early on and then not being there to see them through all those 10 years or, or beyond is, is gonna be problematic. But the other piece is, is this is where you need to bring in the private sector. Um, there needs to be a, um, a, a business and, and entrepreneurship or, or um, market component that at the end of that period, that perhaps you are there supporting them through the transition, there needs to be an actual market opportunity if you don't want to have that dependency on subsidization. And so that's where there needs to be coinciding work being done to build up those market opportunities for whatever that particular change may be leading to. And so whether that be um, consumer demand for, you know, again, let's talk soil health, consumer demand for sustainably sourced, sourced products, you know, what companies are, are you know, tied in with consumers and begin building that up or whatever it may be. So it, it, the, whenever you are asking for those types of changes, you have to be willing to go uh, entire systems and you need to be able to work from different, from different points and you, it cannot be a one and done kind of thing. It has to be in for the long haul if you, long haul, if you want to see widespread lasting change. Very good, thank you. 
Well said, well said, Kira. I'll just add just some small comments. This is such a complex issue, but I think the viewer is beginning to look at what does our future look like? What is the future of farming? And, you know, um, like, like we referred to, you know, you, as, as individual farmers, we take a lot of risk and there's an, you know, an institutional knowledge that has to be respected. A lot of speakers spoke to that. And, um, you know, we can't just change practices and we won't be in business next year. So I think if we think about large scale, like Kira was talking about, I, I think most of us are aware and know that there's a lot of talk about uh, carbon markets and it's, it's very disjointed right now. It's very unorganized. There's companies that are paying farmers for certain practices, you know, with the idea that they are buying carbon sequestration. This is what I referred to that I think we're, we're on this trajectory in this direction, but we need the research, we need the, the data innovation around it. We need, there's a lot of things that have to happen to move us in that direction. And ultimately the risk and the cost of these kind of things have to be shared through the entire food chain. So do what do we believe as a society? Do we really all gather around this race to zero and combating climate change? Then possibly in the future, our food labels will not only have labels about the nutritional value, which has been referred to here, but our food might be labeled with the uh, carbon um, impact and the environmental impact on it. And so people's dollar and their buying power needs to follow through the food chain and the farmers have to have economic payback for the services, the economic services that we are providing if we're being asked to make these kind of major changes to the tried and true methods that we've developed. And this all takes time. I think that's a very, uh, very spot on point, um, very pertinent. Thank you. And speaking of pertinent, um, our next question actually dovetails uh, from that. Uh, this is from Richard Bradbury. And Richard, I'm sorry, we didn't check questions earlier. I know this is a while ago, but ag tech is not very user friendly. He says it's, it's expensive and actually creates more work. I don't need more work, he says. I need less. Plus, most ag tech <clears throat> is selling the data from my operation and charging me for the platform. I have very few uh, techs and the and they deliver, uh, and they don't deliver value. Uh, most just expenses eat up time. So, uh, Richard, I'm not really sure what the question there is, um, but I, I'm going to assume. I, th I don't think Richard's on anymore. I think he jumped off. But I think what he's trying to ask is, um, oh, there you are, Richard. I'm sorry. Do you do you want to expand on that? And is there a question in there? Oh no, I was just commenting on the. We have this great promise of all this technology and all the great things it's going to do, and I've been, I've been really doing deep dives into some of these uh, technologies, and um, they are very often met for a very small scale and not for a large scale. And what I've found is they have a lot of hidden costs. They're very expensive. They take a lot, a lot of time, and. Um, they uh, never are open with how the data is being sold. And I think that 
uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these ag tech companies are building the platforms with the intention of selling the data later on and making more money than what they could ever make off the producer. So um, I have not found a I have not found an ag tech solution that I want to pay for as of yet. And I think the really scary thing is with some of the carbon stuff, like uh, with Indigo, you have to have a particular John Deere application in your tractor to even get the payout for the carbon thing. So that is really putting it in the spectrum of some very major corporations instead of, uh, which goes against my belief is that I think that the uh, carbon market should be an open market and it should be regionally verified and it shouldn't be so channeled. So what I see is uh, a lot of uh, tunneling or uh, focusing people to sort of corporations through these ag techs instead of having it be an open source platform that really provides value to the producer. I think it provides value further down the supply chain and it's putting the burden of that technology and development of that technology on the farmer, who is the one that's getting the least amount of money per dollar spent out of the whole supply chain. I think that's a really fair point. And I think that, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm glad that you're on, uh, Richard, and I'm glad that you raised that because I think we talked a little bit earlier about um, you know, how new ideas need to be implemented. And I think Tom Field mentioned it. He, he couldn't be on the call any longer, but um, how new ideas uh, need to be approached when working with, um, with existing operations and multi-generational operations um, and, and how existing operations and multi-generational operations are, are going to have to be encouraged uh, to, to think about things a little bit differently. Now, I know that doesn't fully encompass your comments, um, and I think you made some really good points within your comments, but I, I, that's, I think, where I would place that. So thank you, and thank you for being a good advocate for agriculture, by the way. We need more of those. Um, I'm not seeing any other questions, per se, in the uh, chat box. I'm seeing a lot of comments. Um, let me see, one just came in. Um, Brian, did you want to discuss your comment here? Um, I can uh, just oh, Brian, ask. I'm sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> No worries. I can just ask my comment if that's easier. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was just kind of building on Dr. Van Warmer's remarks. Uh, it's really important to consider pe um, beyond just people in our constructed systems when we think about food systems, because we obviously don't live in isolation from our environments. Um, how, I guess, can we better listen to, engage, and cooperate with those who are really knowledgeable of those environmental systems um, and beyond, uh, specifically uh, indigenous people, per perhaps, uh, who have a historic understanding of land uh, and kind of ecosystem and people kind of um, cooperation uh, in a really deep way? I don't, I don't know if that's specifically thrown to me, but I, I will just say that I think that, you know, we all have a lot of opportunity and work to do in being really good listeners and thinking about how to engage in meaningful conversations with people who have, you know, the same or different perspectives. I think that we talked so much about the value of diverse voices earlier, and I, I think that's across lots of different spectrums of culture and of you know, academic discipline and training and occupation. And so 
I think a lot of it is asking ourselves how how do we engage in those meaningful conversations and um, and really take the time to listen. That's excellent. Thank you. Are there any other questions for the panel? I'd assume at this point, if you had one, you would have raised your hand. Um, but I'll shoot it out there one last time. Oh, Phil would like to respond to Brianne's question uh, by pointing out that, oh, hang on. Phil, do you want to just say your, your response? Yeah, I just think it's important that we, you know, first recognize that there's a problem, you know, or quite a few problems that intersect with each other. And not all those problems, you know, we feel acutely ourselves, especially if we're not living a hundred miles from, you know, a big city, um, like so many of the, you know, large scale farmers and ranchers, or even just 10 miles outside of the big city, your perspective is so much different than the, you know, 50% of the world, more than 50% of the world that lives in cities. Uh, but getting to Brianne's question, you know, like I, I'm in South Dakota, uh, you know, not not quite in Nebraska, like so many of you lucky folks, but um, most of our poorest counties here in South Dakota are um, within Native American reservations. And that's a problem, you know, that there has been so little economic development and uh, development of, you know, semi-sustainable food systems. And I just think that's, you know, one of the biggest tragedies of our time. But I think it would be interesting to also, you know, beyond like the problems of my own state, to maybe have the panelists share uh, what they see as some of the big problems of our time that we haven't touched on today. Excellent. Thank you, Phil. That's open to everyone. I see Richard's got a hand raised. I can't hear you. You're muted. I had a, I had a separate question after his is addressed. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Liz, you've got your hand up. I was I was just going to go back to, I think this kind of connects to both Phil's point and Brian's point that I, I do think that, you know, not having representation of a lot of different types of knowledge in our decision making is a big problem. You know, when we don't have Indigenous voices or other voices incorporated, I do think that you're right, Phil, that we have to say that that is a problem and we have to look at you know, what policies are in place and how they're designed and who benefits and, and think about who really needs to be at the table for a lot of those conversations. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll just add to that for a little bit, uh, just for a little perspective as well. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, absolutely, any, any organization is better with uh, more uh, varied and deeper and diverse views. But the other question there is, is part of an organization that often seeks those voices for board positions, among other things, um, but doesn't get any response from those communities. How do we encourage the, uh, those communities to think about how they share their voices? That's, that's another big question, I think. So, okay, Richard, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I joined a little bit late, but um, it was in the midst of talking about water. And my question goes to, is agriculture not the highest and best use of water, other than like personal maintenance of drinking? What exactly are we conserving water for, lawns and cities or pools? I mean, shouldn't the primary function of all water be back to agriculture? I'm, 
I think that's the thing I was struggling with. It sounds like um, in the answer that I heard that um, it's not the top priority of a society. And I think it goes back to that savory comment is uh, any society is only is ever going to be as successful as its agriculture base. So, um, and I, I think this ties into the larger conversation is I think that a lot of urban areas are net pools for their net loss for the resources that are coming off the land. And then therefore not, they're not adding back in the value they're taking out. And I think once you start messing with water, and we see this in the Delta around the San Francisco area, where they are basically ruining hundreds of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland so that they can save uh, the sucker or the chub. And then Klamath Basin, they in the Klamath Basin water battle, they uh, took all of the water that the farmers had been using for probably going on three to four generations now. Uh, told them one thing at the beginning of the season and then said they'd have no water. So they invested millions of dollars into um, more efficient water use. And Klamath Lake currently in the middle of a drought is completely full and no farmer has access to any of that water and it'll eventually just run out to the ocean. So I feel that we're not prioritizing water correctly. And I heard that lack of prioritization in some of the answers. And I just wanted to get some clarification on that. Where do the panelists think the water sits in the bigger conversation? Dr. McCormick, would you like to address that question? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that question, Richard. It's a, it's a big question with a, it could be a complicated answer. Um, where it sits, uh, well, I think maybe just go back to your earlier point this, and I, I think it was Kira that used the USDA numbers in terms of consumptive use and it was 60% as I recall of the water used by my, in, in the US. Um, I think over, overall the United States has actually done really well in, in reducing the amount of water it diverts over the last 30 years or so. The amount of water diverted uh, to, for agriculture has actually gone down. That's the amount of water that comes out of the rivers or is pumped out of the groundwater to, to agriculture. But then ultimately, uh, the water to produce the, the, the crops, the amount of water that's then consumed, that's, that's evaporated out through the crops, it's difficult to get that number down. And, and that's where actually the, the, the breeding, the better management on, on the farm, not just the center pivots and better pipes, it's actually on the breeding and the, the, the practices and the, uh, uh, the, the, the management of the crops that the U.S. has done well in that space in terms of improving how much water is used in agriculture. Um, the, the, the issue we then have, of course, is we have growing populations in or, or growing cities, in, whether you're in uh, Nevada or California and, and drier places where then agriculture, the value of that water for other uses and agriculture versus uh, um, other sectors, it Agriculture loses out because it's you have to be in a very high value crop to to actually be able to produce that those crops. Uh, if sometimes the rights allow, it, the, the farmer may not want to sell, or there's require, requirements, but there's a lot of pressure on the farmers then to sell on that asset if if they can through the different systems. That very much depends on the local legal system, what's going on in that particular basin. 
what we then see in, in the West, we have a lot of the rights sorted out to allow for that sort of thing. As we go further east, we don't have those things in place because there hasn't been this competition for water and agriculture hasn't needed the irrigation. But we're seeing more and more irrigation further east in Nebraska. We're seeing irrigation picking up in, in, uh, in Georgia, but the water systems, the institutions around that aren't, this, aren't the ones that have been developed in the western part of the US. So the, in many ways, yes, there, there are these trade-offs and, and water is being diverted away from agriculture. But at the same time, we're then in a place like we, when we sit in Nebraska, we have a lot of water, it's being well managed. Um, and and, and you, you can produce a more uh, uh, higher value crop. So it is, um, it's again, not to come back to the answers are in the local context, but there's certainly, it, it is a contextual matter, um, but we, agriculture, well, and, and the other point here is if we're going to produce more food, the idea looking at agriculture having this large amount of water, because of that point I was saying about, about the evapotranspiration and the amount of water you need, if we're going to produce more food and, and it's a different varieties and in different nutritional qualities, we are going to need water and we're going, we're going to need more water in basins, in river systems that are already water short. So this becomes, it's not, it's not as easy as the last 20% of the food. The next 30% food production is going to be more difficult because the water is going to be more challenging to manage. So um, yes, we, 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 there will be, agriculture will use more water uh, going forward. It's not an area where we can actually take that much water away from agriculture because we do need more food. Very good. Thank you for your, your comment, Dr. McCormick. And with that, we're at uh, 5.30. Uh, we couldn't have timed it any better, by the way. Good job. Um, I want to thank everyone on the panel um, and in the audience uh, for your time today, sharing your expertise, and really what I thought was a very robust conversation um, around a lot of topics. And, you know, again, I hope that this is an opportunity for uh, our friends at the United Nations and in other parts of the world who have joined in to see the great work that we're working, that we're doing here in, in Nebraska and with our partners adjacent to Nebraska. Um, you know, so thank you very much for representing your industries and for sharing your expertise on this call. Um, again, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the Executive Director of Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. And I'm uh, so thrilled uh, to have been with you today. So thank you very much.